focus on headline. Now let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio, the Sochi sisters are back in action in the studio. Soa and Ji, guys, welcome back. Good evening. Good evening, Good evening to you guys. D- d- yes. <laughs> and Soa's back with her random comments. Uh, today, obviously a big day for many of the students or test takers, uh, as hundreds of thousands, in fact, half a million uh, students and uh, even non-students, right, taken for the second, third, or if you were my cousin some years ago, four times. Uh, this is the Sunan, uh, the College Scholastic Ability Test with the CSATs. Uh, they've prepared for many, many years. It's not like the SATs in the United States where you kind of study for like maybe a year or two. Uh, they've been studying for years here. So uh, the exam is now finally done and over th- with as of about uh, 20 five minutes ago. Uh, let's get some uh, general updates of today's Suning. Yes, actually around 20 minutes ago because uh, it should have ended at 5.45pm. Ah, so Suning or Korea's College Scholastic Ability Test started in the morning at 8.40 and ended at 5.45 as I said. For some, uh, maybe earlier depending on whether you take all the subjects or not. So uh, the test subjects are, I'm going to mention them in the order they are taken. Korean language, mathematics, then they had a lunch break, uh, English, followed by Korean history, and subordinate subjects because uh, examinees choose among social studies, science, and vocational education, and then last but not least, uh, second foreign language, and there's also a variety to choose from. Uh, Out of these subjects, Korean history is mandatory. Now, there's been no change in the system or general structure of the college entrance exam test. Uh, compared to last year, but there is something that was not included in this year's test or what uh, the government said was not included is killer questions, which are a minority of extremely difficult questions in the exam, which in many cases are decisive in differentiating between the best and very best scores. We're going to get into the details on those uh, with T in a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, But first, uh, there were some 1,279 test sites in eight 84 regional exam units nationwide today with 504,588 applicants for the 2024 college admission. Uh, that is the number that uh, actually applied for Suneng. Uh, probably the exact number might be lower if there were a few that could not take the test today. Uh, but uh, this number is almost 3,500 uh, lower than last year. And among the total number of applicants this year, 326,646 or 64.7% were high school graduates. Seems like a quite low percentage because most of the rest of the percentage were retakers. So high school students, not graduates yet, right? Mm-hmm. So 64.7% were kosam or, you know, senior, senior high seniors, school yeah. graduates. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, seniors not th- that are going to gradu- graduate right. now. <laughs> and uh, almost 160,000 or 31.7% uh, takers were retakers. Jesuseng uh, in Korean or, as you mentioned, SJ, before, there are also some who take the test three times. That would be Samsuseng. Four times would be Hasuseng. So we often refer to them as Ensu. 
Susengs. And this proportion of retakers was the highest in 28 years. Uh, this, meanwhile, was the first Suneng since 2020 that was free of any COVID-19 prevention rules. Even test takers confirmed with the virus or who had symptoms were not separated from others. And this year, you could not, um, you know, have the exam at a hospital room. No. Uh, the education ministry, however, had recommended the wearing of face masks and especially K94 for COVID-19 patients and K80 masks for those who had symptoms. Uh, infected exam takers, however, ate lunch in a separate area. The Korea Institute of Curriculum and Evaluation accepts objections to questions until the 20th uh, this month. And uh, considering those, they will make an announcement to these on the 28th. And Sunung reports are distributed to the test takers on December 8th. Now, last but not least, uh, I want to say congratulations uh, on all the Sunung takers. You're probably now resting or having spending your time with friends and families. But uh, I just want to mention, enjoy your time in a safe manner because it's rainy out there. That's right. And uh, it's not surprising that we are seeing more of the retakers. And this is largely due to the fact that they've gotten rid of the uh, the color questions and mm-hmm. so find it easier maybe uh, to take it for whatever nth time that uh, uh, they're taking this exam. By the way, also, in cl- I have to mention this because I think this is remarkable. Of the student or test takers uh, that took part in today's student, there is one lady who's 82 years old who took the Sunung today. And so I, I don't know how well she did or anything. I think she came out on that uh, show, You Kids on the Block or something like that recently. Uh, but uh, great kudos to you for wow. uh, doing something that uh, even I haven't done, which so and I, we didn't take it. Gee, did you take this? No. no none of us take this exam. <laughs> well, so we can't say anything in regards to this or how hard it is or anything like that. But again, this year's uh, Sunung is... I guess all the more in the spotlight because as Soa mentioned earlier, the removal or the exemption of these uh, killer question and uh, this decision of course was made by the government as part of their efforts to enhance and prioritize public education over private education. There's consensus that these expensive cram schools or these academies uh, that people pay for, they are capable of helping kids uh, solve these killer questions. So if you have money, then you'll get better scores is what it is. Chi, mm. let's get more information on the uh, removal of the, the, the killer questions. So the head of the SAT examination committee, Jung Moon-sung, who chairs this year's Suneng, announced that the National College Entrance Exam for the 2024 academic year in South Korea has been designed to ensure fairness without those killer questions. Now, he made these remarks at a briefing this morning, uh, right after the exam began. According to Jung, the Ministry of Education's measures to reduce private education have resulted in the exclusion of killer questions and the distribution of appropriately challenging questions, ensuring fairness based on the content covered in public education courses only. Now, to ensure that the exam content is fair, a question review team has been created in addition to the examination committee to eliminate killer questions from the beginning of the examination to the review and finalization stages. Now, Chong explained that questions that required excessive knowledge of specialized content or induced students to spend an excessive amount of time solving problems have been excluded, and the scope and level of the current curriculum were also considered to ease the burden of excessive exam preparation on students, as well as to help internalize school education. 
Now, to address concerns that excluding killer questions would lower the difficulty level of the whole exam, he emphasized that they aimed to maintain appropriate fairness. And the September mock ex- assessment was used as a benchmark after the government announced its its decision to remove killer questions. Now, the announcement was made right after that September mock exam. And this September mock test was evaluated to be more challenging than last year's Sunung, with the Korean language section being more difficult and the math section being somewhat less challenging at the top uh, while maintaining overall fairness. So I just got some information in regards to the difficulty mm. of uh, today's Sunung. And so they're saying that despite the fact that they got rid of these uh, killer question, uh, the Korean language portion and the math portion was difficult. Mm. Now, they're saying uh, the Korean uh, the Korean portion was more difficult than last year's uh, Sunung and the, the mock exam back in September. Oh. And then for math, uh, it was easier than last year's Sunung, but more difficult than the Mac, the mock exam. And so even though they have these killer questions removed, it's still a very difficult question for our listeners out there. And then, and we mentioned this with Rob earlier this week. Even the English portion, we're all fluent with the English language. We cannot solve any of those questions. <laughs> I'll just put I'll tell you that. I'm not gonna i I'm not gonna be acing the English portion just like just because I speak English, but uh it's but again, guys, kudos to you guys. I mean, hours and hours of having to go through all those uh, questions uh, finally done and over with. And I'm sure that uh, there's uh, many, I think, events and uh, discounts mm-hmm. in store for all the uh, Sunung takers uh, now. And uh, so enjoy your time until these scores come out. Uh, let's move on here to the APEC summit uh, over in San Francisco. South Korean President Yoon suk uh, arriving on Wednesday local time for this very event. And we're going to start things off with his very first itinerary there, uh, meeting with Korean residents over in the U.S. city of San Francisco. So uh, tell us more about this. Sure. President Yoon Seok-yeol's official schedule out of his three-day trip to San Francisco kicked off with a luncheon with South Korean residents living in the U.S. city. He and First Lady Kim Gun-hee met with around 150 of them at a hotel shortly upon arrival. President Yoon highlighted the significance of him meeting with the residents by saying that the history of the development of the Korean community in the U.S. is equivalent to that of the development of the South Korea-U.S. alliance. In particular, San Francisco, he said, is the starting point of the Korean community on U.S. mainland, referring to the passage of Koreans through San Francisco after arriving in Hawaii 120 years ago. With that, he praised San Francisco residents for their contributions that played a huge role in the development of Korean communities in the U.S. He also noted that for the first time in 11 years, a sitting South Korean president is meeting with Korean residents in Northern California. This year, President Yoon said, will also be remembered as another historic uh, starting point with South Korea and the U.S. celebrating their 70th anniversary of their alliance, noting how he's already on his fourth visit to the U.S. this year alone. With that, uh, President Yoon previewed that at the upcoming APEC summit, Seoul and Washington will convey a message for the international community to band together with the two countries by, quote, cooperating on challenges and through innovation and tolerance. Speaking of innovation, President Yoon also asked the residents to contribute to the advancement of the bilateral alliance in the fields of 
science and technology, and also to communicate with global talents in that regard, emphasizing the tremendous capabilities in IT and high-tech areas among the Korean community. And I have to say, especially in Silicon Valley and so forth. That's right. And uh, President Yoon also emphasized the pivotal role of the 21-member APEC uh, member states uh, in strengthening the connectivity of the world economy in his keynote speech delivered uh, at the APEC CEO Summit in San Francisco. This, of course, uh, shortly after he arrived in the city for the summit. Uh, Chi, let's get the details of that. Sure. So President Yoon, during his keynote speech, emphasized the need to improve world's connectivity in areas such as trade and supply chains. Now, he expressed his concerns about the weakening strength of connection and the rising force of division that's becoming noticeable in different parts of the world today. Uh, Yoon also highlighted the ongoing war in Ukraine, the Israel-Hamas conflict, and the growing technological hegemony, along with resource weaponization, as significant contributors to the segmentation of the world economy into blocks. Now, supply chain risks that have been brought forward by the pandemic are also posing a quote-unquote large threat to nations in the Asia-Pacific region, according to Yoon. Now, he also mentioned that despite the infinite possibilities of the digital economy, data connectivity and the value it produces have yet to meet market expectations. Now, to restore the world economy's dynamism and continue sustainable growth, APEC must take the lead in accelerating the connectivity of the world economy. Now, to this end, Yoon outlined three types of connectivity uh, that need to be improved upon. First, he stated that connectivity must be strengthened in areas like trade, investment, and supply chains, especially since supply chain risks are a matter of national security uh, for states and business survival. And to achieve this, he proposed that APEC come up with support measures to help its member states, as well as companies, establish a supply chain response capability and share their past experiences of instituting early warning systems, as well as taking other steps to overcome crises. Now, the second type of connectivity that needs to be strengthened, according to Yoon, is in the digital factor. Uh, sector, and he reaffirmed Korea's commitment to actively uh, participate in international discussions to to actually establish digital rules. And finally, he called for expanding exchanges among the future generations of APEC member economies. Now, he suggested uh, for this, Korea propose a Young Scientists Exchange Initiative based on the success of the APEC Business Travel Card, uh, which facilitates short-term business travel within the APEC region by streamlining entry procedures. Now, this will guarantee free movement within the region of young people with a certain level of degree in science and those who work in R&D. And also, uh, there's... Tomorrow, Yoon and his Japanese counterpart, it's the 16th local time, in fact. Mm. Uh, His Japanese counterpart, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, will hold a bilateral meeting on the sidelines of the summit. And this would be their first bilateral summit since September, uh, when they met on the margins of the Group of 20 summit in India. That's right. And the two leaders are going to be taking part in a uh, discussion uh, over at uh, Stanford University, right? Mm. And uh, where he's going to be talking to some of the students here. By the way, uh, he didn't, uh, what is it, Uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook didn't take part in this 
CEO summit, but uh, he met with uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol. I don't know if you heard uh, this along with the uh, delegation uh, with uh, President Yoon. Uh, was it uh, Park Jin was there for Mr. Park Jin was there. Uh, uh, was it uh, the senior presidential spokesperson, uh, Park Geun-hye, was there as well, and a number of other delegates, and uh, also uh, some of the Apple CEOs like uh, Lisa Jackson. But uh, big discussions happening over there. But guys, let's face it, the big big event on the sidelines of the apex summit is this meeting uh between the leaders of the united states and china president joe biden and president xi jinping uh, finally meeting over in san francisco there was a lot of talks about whether or not this was going to even happen in the first place uh but it did happen now i know tensions were at amongst the highest over the past few years over trade uh, war and uh, restrictions and a lot of these uh, key materials involving semiconductors. But uh, it seems like uh, the talks were relatively amicable, nevertheless. Uh, so let's begin with some general information of the summit before we get into, I guess, the actual details of the results with Xi. Right. Uh, this sideline meeting, although being a sideline summit on the occasion of the APEC summit, actually is at the center of attention as talks between the two biggest powers of the world have implications for almost any other country in the world. U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping got together in person for the first time in a year at the Filoli Estate in Woodside, south of San Francisco, on the Wednesday local time. And for President Xi, it was his first visit to the U.S. in more than six years since his meeting with former U.S. President Donald Trump. Uh, remarks by Biden and Xi in their open statements had some similarities in that the two want to find ways to coexist while continuing to compete. And and SJ, as you mentioned, all in all, it was an amicable atmosphere. So here are some remarks following the summit. First, by Biden, who vowed for continuous competition and that in a vigorous way with China. But he said, quote, we will manage that competition responsibly so that it does not veer into conflict. He also made uh, comments regarding cooperation. Uh, here's uh, one quote. So where it's possible, where our interests coincide, we're going to work together like we did on fentanyl. Adding, that's what the world expects from the two countries. Details on fentanyl again by Xi later on. Uh, Biden also highlighted Washington and Beijing are back to direct communication that's open and clear and noted that, quote, vital miscalculations on either side can cause real trouble with a country like China or any other major country, and so I think we're making real progress there as well. Now, President Xi Jinping referred to the China-U.S. relationship as the quote, most important bilateral relationship in the world, highlighting the need to develop that relationship in a way that benefits the people of both countries and, quote, fulfills our responsibility for human progress. And he also said that for uh, these two huge countries, uh, turning their backs on each other is not an option. And another quote by him, it is unrealistic for one side to remodel the other and conflict and confrontation, confrontation have unbearable consequences for both sides. And he also added that uh, the, the planet Earth is big enough for these both countries to make success. And also the success of one country is an opportunity for the other one. Now, leading towards the summit, there were 
efforts made by uh, between Washington and Beijing to increase high-level dialogue amid continued tensions over security, trade, technology, and more. Both sides have been showing signals in recent days of wanting to improve relations, which had entered a dangerous phase earlier uh, this year, also last year, especially following former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan that appeared to be a gesture showing support for the country, which Beijing views as its territory. The recent efforts include a reaffirmation to cooperate on climate issues as well as a resumption of more flights between the two countries. And also last month, Chinese commodity importers signed agreements to purchase U.S. agricultural goods in bulk, uh, the first such deal since 2017. It's so confusing, this relationship between the United States and China, because you know that I mean the two major economic powers, right? And you know that they're also rivals as well. And it's at the same time, they know that they need each other uh, to continue to move forth in the global economy. But yet they're still at each other. You saw uh, a number of high ranking U.S. officials head over to Beijing and then you even saw Wang Yi head over to Washington. Uh, shortly after that and so but at the same time they don't want to show that they're kind of losing this war this trade war which i found some of the comments that uh, biden said by the way uh during the uh, the summit like we're not going to get rid of any of the sanctions look look we want we want to make clear everything's cool with you guys but we're going to leave the sanctions in place and so they moved slightly there wasn't a big thing going on but we're going to deep uh, dive deeper into some of the agendas that were discussed mm-hmm. and also the outcomes of the two leaders uh meeting there uh Chi, get let's get the latest there Right. So the summit between President Biden and President Xi lasted for four hours. And like Soa explained, it was held on the sidelines, but uh, gained a lot of attention, in fact. Now, the goal was to de-risk the relationship between the two countries and prevent any misunderstanding that could lead to conflict. Now, during the summit, the two leaders agreed to resume bilateral military communication as well and work together to curb illicit fentanyl production. Now, Biden emphasized the importance of both competition and cooperation between the two superpowers and said that the U.S. will continue to compete vigorously vigorously with China, but will do so responsibly to avoid any conflict. So like you said, SJ, it is a very complex, uh, complicated relationship between the two superpowers. And resuming direct military to military contacts was considered a significant agreement by both leaders and an outcome of the summit, because military communications between the two sides had been suspended since former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan in August last year. And tensions escalated further in February after the U.S. shot down uh, what is called the Chinese spy balloon over its territorial waters. Now, the two leaders also agreed to take action to significantly reduce the flow of precursor chemicals and pill presses uh, from China to the Western Hemisphere to fight against fentanyl. And Biden expressed his appreciation for Xi's commitment to this issue, and both leaders tasked their teams to maintain policy and law enforcement coordination in the future to ensure it works. Now, another outcome of the summit was the agreement to get experts from the U.S. and China together to discuss the risks and safety issues associated with artificial intelligence. 
Now, Washington has been pushing to foster international norms for the responsible use of AI, especially in the military domain, as concerns have persisted that the technology can be exploited to undermine human rights as well as other important values. Of course, those were just some of the uh, items discussed between the two leaders. Uh, G, wrap us up with uh, some of the other matters that were discussed between the two leaders. Sure. So other than these, a variety of issues were discussed, including Russia's war in Ukraine, the conflict between Israel and the Hamas militant group, human rights, the South China Sea, as well as Taiwan, which China considers as its territory, uh, despite being a self-ruling democracy. And in a press release following the summit, the White House stated that President Biden emphasized the United States' unwavering commitment to freedom of navigation and overflight, uh, adherence to international law, and maintaining peace and stability in the South and East China Seas, as well as the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Now, regarding human rights and the South China Sea, President Biden stated that no agreements had been reached, and he also emphasized the importance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. You know, there's like so many important issues at hand, and uh, there is a reason why they mentioned, uh, brought about the the, the issue of fighting uh, the fentanyl issue, Mm. because they're in San Francisco right now. I don't know if you guys, San Francisco used to be a beautiful, beautiful city. Uh, from what I, I haven't been to the U.S. in 14 years, so I've, I've only seen video clips. But uh, downtown San Francisco is what they're calling zombie town oh, right yeah. now. Uh, it's because mm-hmm. there's a high number of homelessness. Mm. And two, there are many, many people who are using fentanyl. And uh, for those that use fentanyl, they're, they're literally, they're frozen. Like, they seem like they're frozen in, in the, on the moment. Like, they're, they're, like, randomly in weird formations of their body, and they're not moving. And they're just frozen in place. And they're just, if they're waking up from the, 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 the high, they start walking like zombies and stuff mm. like that. And so, because they're in San Francisco for the talks, I think it was all the more important that they, mm. uh, they, they raised the issue over fentanyl, but it's a big concern over there. San Francisco is no longer a very touristy area that it used to be uh, back uh, only a few years back, by the way. Uh, moving on, uh, North Korea's human rights violations have been reaffirmed by a United Nations committee on Wednesday uh, with the passage of a resolution including the issue of forced repatriation of North Korean defectors in China. Uh, this, of course, for the 19th straight year. Uh, so let's get the details of this. Yes, uh, as you said, for the 19th consecutive year, the third committee handling human rights and social affairs adopted a resolution on North Korea's human rights violations. It was passed by consensus and will now be sent to a full General Assembly session for final approval in December. One of the major reasons for this year's adoption comes on the back of growing concerns for the safety of North Korean defectors who were forcibly repatriated from China. The resolution is led by the European Union this year and highlights very serious concerns over these repatriations. It strongly urges all UN member states to respect the, quote, fundamental principle of non-refoulement, especially in the light of a resumption of cross-border travel. South Korea and the U.S. have in particular voiced these concerns, and uh, we also recently talked about uh, officials from the two countries 
referring to numerous records on the issue. And the issue came up as a growing problem since COVID-19 border closures ended earlier this year and travel increased. The resolution also invites the UN Security Council to take appropriate measures to ensure accountability, and that could include a referral to the International Criminal Court and sanctions against those most responsible for uh, such human rights crimes. Meanwhile, North Korea's ambassador to the UN, Kim Song, was not happy at all about the passing of the resolution, claiming North Korea, quote, categorically denied the draft re- resolution, calling it an anti-DPRK political plot, DPRK uh, referring to the official name of North Korea. Uh, he said it consists falsehood, fabrication, and so forth. He added that Pyongyang follows its so-called people-first policy <laughs> in all spheres of social life. South Korea's ambassador to the UN, Hwang Jung-guk, meanwhile, said the South Korean government is very concerned about media reports uh, that say hundreds of North Korean defectors have been forcibly repatriated uh, and all UN member states should adhere to the principle of prohibiting forced repatriation. And he also urged Pyongyang to improve the human rights situation instead of sticking to nuclear weapons and missiles development. I wonder if Kim Song had a straight face when he said this or I th- usually they do right oh, no, they're very um... I you know this is what I, <laughs> all right so I'm gonna be honest with you one of the things that I like to do when there's like these UN you know meetings and stuff like that mm-hmm. it, it happens in the mornings I go on to the UN uh, uh, website and I purposely look for the uh, the statements from Kim Song it's it's fun it's really some of the words that he chooses to describe like South Korea and the United States, it's it's entertaining at times. But this is gonna be the most ridiculous thing that you use. People first, right? So if the uh, people mm. of North Korea have decided that they want to defect North Korea because of all the continued starvations that are going on, all the human rights violations that are going on, I mean, they should be allowed to, right? If it's people first. But uh, this is unfortunately not the most ridiculous thing that we've seen uh, in regards to some of the things that the atrocities that go on in North Korea. Uh, also, the UN Security Council adopting a resolution for humanitarian pauses in Gaza. Uh, this to allow for aid delivery and medical evacuations after uh, many failed attempts to respond to the ongoing Israel-Hamas armed conflict. Gee, let's get more on this. Right. So in a significant development at the United Nations, the Security Council has finally adopted a resolution. This was sponsored by Malta, uh, calling for urgent humanitarian pauses and the establishment of safe corridors within the Gaza Strip. Now, the resolution aims to protect civilians, particularly children, and demands the unconditional release of individuals held captive in the region. Now, the resolution garnered widespread support with 12 votes in favor and notable abstentions from Russia, the United States, and the United Kingdom, three of the Council's permanent members with veto power. Now, despite its passage, the resolution notably did not address the call for a ceasefire, nor did it mention the recent hostilities, including one on the 7th of October. Uh, This was an attack by Hamas, which, according to Israeli officials, resulted in approximately 1,200 deaths and the capture of some 240 individuals. Now, among the key provisions, the resolution lists the need for unimpeded unimpeded delivery of essential supplies, including fuel and mandates, a report from the UN Secretary General on the implementation of these measures in the next Middle East Security Council meeting. 
Now, reacting to the resolution, Israel's ambassador to the UN, uh, Gilad Erdin, uh, criticized it as being disconnected from the actual situation on the ground, maintaining that Israel's actions in Gaza are in line with international law, despite contrary claims from various experts. Now, this latest resolution breaks a pattern of unsuccessful attempts. <clears throat> Excuse me. With four prior initiatives over the past two weeks uh, falling short due to insufficient support or vetoes by the council's permanent members. Hmm. Oh, is that <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry. I thought there was a little bit more on this. I thought oh. you were getting uh, very emotional with stuff that's going on oh. right now because it does get very emotional yeah. with some of the stuff that are going on. Uh, and another thing that was sort of highly controversial uh, that the Israeli military conducted was their numerous attack and the raid on the largest hospital in Gaza. We're talking about the Al-Shifa hospital. Uh, In response to this, Israel said that it had detected uh, or they found the Hamas command center. They found weapons. uh, They found combat gear uh, below the uh, hospital, of course, uh, saying that uh, this is the reason why we took part in the offensive. Uh, so uh, let's get the latest on this. Right. The Israel Defense Forces, or IDF, on Wednesday evening said they found an operational command center, weapons and technological assets in the Al-Shifa hospital that belong to Hamas. IDF provided images and videos that apparently show Hamas uh, weapons, including Uh, automatic weapons, grenades, ammunition, and flak jackets. And some of these weapons seem to have been hidden behind uh, MRI scanners. Now, Hamas strongly denies the allegations, claiming the statements are, quote, lies and cheap propaganda. Uh, this the uh, this comes on the heels of global outcry over Israel's military operations in the area close to the hospital, and it also comes as uh, Israel has been repeatedly claiming that the hospital sits above a Hamas headquarters, and this is a comment the U.S. has also supported, citing its own intelligence. However, the White House uh, denies giving Israel the green light to carry out a raid on the hospital stressing that the country is operating on its own accord. Let's uh, shift our focus uh, to something that uh, we haven't uh, actually covered in quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, talking about the ongoing war uh, over in Ukraine, because the European Commission has suggested new sanctions against Russia over its war in Ukraine, uh, introducing further tightened measures. Now, until now, 11 sanctions packages have been slapped against Moscow, and this would be 12th. If approved, uh, G, round the cell, let's get the lace on this. Sure. So the European Union is set to impose a fresh set of sanctions against Russia. And these sanctions, which are in the EU Commission's 12th draft, will outlaw the direct import of diamonds from Russia starting from uh, the 1st of January in 2024. In addition, the EU will implement what they call a traceability mechanism to prevent the import of Russian-made jewelry that is being processed in a third country. Now, this mechanism will be introduced in stages and coordination uh, with the group of seven countries, including the United States, Canada, uh, the United Kingdom, and Japan. Now, moreover, the draft commission uh, sanctions include restrictions on the import of LPG from Russia, and some member states, including Poland, have requested these sanctions. 
Poland, which is the largest importer of LPG for automotive and heating fuel in the EU, accounts for one-third of Russia's total LPG uh, exports as of the beginning of this year. And the EU is also preparing to tighten existing sanctions, this including a cap on the price of Russian oil. Now, it's considering requiring shipping companies that transport Russian crude to report detailed information on insurance as well as the transportation costs. And the idea is to prevent them from hiding the actual transaction price by including part of the price of crude oil transported by tankers and transportation and insurance costs. Now, the EU, the G7 in Australia have imposed a $60 per barrel price cap on Russian crude since December last year. However, there have been a persistent allegations of sanctions evasion with crude actually being traded at prices closer to $80 per barrel. You know, there's a lot of countries out there from the very start of the, the war in Ukraine that mm. they weren't going to be purchasing these crude or they weren't going to buy energy. And then they got a list of all the countries that have been buying it at very mm. cheap. It's it, it's hard. Uh, that's the thing. And, uh, you know, they, they continue to say that uh, Russia is weaponizing uh, energy. But I'm not sure if it's weaponizing per se. Russia just happens to have a whole lot of energy sources, including crude oil, and you know all the countries need it. So what do you do, right? Uh, very quickly, one of our listeners says, uh, "All did all three of you go to university overseas because you guys didn't take the Sunung? Uh, I, I'm the only one that's studied uh, university, overseas. but uh, you guys got in through like special missions, right? Early emissions, like sushi." Ah. And for me, for it me. was uh, like for a foreigner, stuff. yeah, um, which f- was not easy, by the way, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> no one said it was easy. No one said it was easy. But guys, thank you very much for your reports today. Certainly a very busy day of news. Have a safe one. We'll see you guys again. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.